chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. This can be found on page 1180 of your Bibles and on the screens in front of you. That's Philippians chapter 4, being in verse 2. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, thank you for those readings. If you've opened up your Bibles, can I encourage you to keep it especially open at the Philippians reading, which we'll be looking at in just a moment. Over the past few mornings, we've been looking at this letter to Philippi that the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's, of course, his last letter that we've been hearing about, and we've heard also that it's such a Christ-centred, Christ-wrenched letter that the one thing that the readers and hearers of these letters would have come away with is the name of Christ resounding in their ears. So I'm going to pray in his name that we might see him afresh this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now as we consider it, as we meditate upon it, and as we seek to apply it to our lives, that Lord Jesus Christ, we would see you afresh, that we would hear your voice and see the wonders of who you are, and that we might become better followers of you here in this place. Amen. Well, this week on the internet social website Reddit, I'm up with the times, Um, I came across a page that asked the question, what brings you peace of mind? And it asked various people to reply with their comments. And the answers were really varied, and it kind of exemplified the spectrum of human nature. And here are a few of the answers. That one day, I can just sit and do nothing. Hands up if that's you. Taking pictures of my dog playing in the garden. Staring up into space at night. When I get home from a tough, long day and my daughter yells, Daddy! And runs up to me and gives me a big hug and then tells me about her day as well as a two-year-old brain can. I wonder what your answer would be. What brings you peace of mind? I want to begin with that because our passage this morning is all about peace and specifically at the end, peace of mind. 
There are three types of peace that are mentioned in this passage. Firstly, a practical peace. Paul is calling two of the leading ladies of the church, Ayudia and Syzygy, to agree with each other. They've been warring. They've been falling out with each other. And Paul is calling the church to help them to be at peace. It's not good for the church. Be at peace. And then there's an emotional peace. He moves on to things of anxieties and issues of the heart and he calls the church to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And if there are any anxieties, to offer them to God in prayer, knowing that when we do that, the peace of God that passes all understanding guards us in peace. But further on from practical peace and emotional peace, right at the end of our passage, there is peace of mind. He calls the church to meditate, to think upon the things that are right, that are good, that are pleasing, to think upon the right examples, in front of them, with the promise at the end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. A promise of peace of mind for each and every one of the people who follow Christ. And so we're looking at this morning. What does it mean? How do we achieve and maintain peace of mind? I think this is especially an important question for today's society where there's a lot that would rob us of peace and cause anxiety. In a recent survey of adults in Britain, 86% of people say that they consider themselves to be worriers. The average adult spends one hour, 50 minutes a day worrying, which equates to 28 days a year being anxious. The top five sources of worry were work, financial worries, being late, a relative or friend's bad health, or their own bad health. I wonder if I ask for a show of hands this morning, how many people would be able to put up their hands and say that they've had a worry-free day already, even though it's only a few hours old? Worry and anxiety and lack of peace are just endemic to human nature. It's part of life in the modern world. But to these things, Jesus promises in John 14, my peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give, but he promises to give peace. And that biblical idea of peace is of something so much deeper, so much richer than just a freedom from anxiety. It denotes connotations of wholeness and flourishing and living life the way it's meant to be, going with the grain of the universe, walking in freedom and in joy. And that's what Jesus promises to us. And in this passage, Paul gives us two key ways of achieving and receiving that peace of mind that leads to peace of heart, that leads to peace all around. And the first is this. Consume health food for the mind. Consume health food for the mind. You weren't expecting me to say that, were you? Many of you will be aware that over the past decades there's been a growing emphasis on what we eat and making sure that we eat properly, properly, eating only what is healthy for us and eliminating junk food. There's even these superfoods that are supposed to be especially good for us that if you eat them, they will do wonders for you. I'm not personally convinced, but I know that some people swear by them. Actually, it's a battle that I often lose. There's too many good Chinese takeaways around in South Sea. 
Um, but I think it's a right and good way of thinking about our bodies that have been given to us by God in his service to steward. But what Paul says here is the equivalent for our minds, actually, to only consume with our minds that which is good and healthy and will bring wholeness and to get rid of anything that's like junk food that won't do those things, that will be to our detriment. Verse 80 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Quite a list, eight different things, eight different nutrients almost for the mind. Eight different things that if we consume them, if we think upon them, if we meditate and chew over them, it'll bring blessing, it'll bring peace, it'll bring wholeness. Eight different things that almost will rewire the way we think and cause us to not think only of the anxieties, first and foremost, but of all the good things, all the wonderful things that we've been richly given. Eight things that will transform our thought life the saying, you are what you eat. It's especially true for our minds. The things that we fill them with, the things that we allow to pass through them, will determine, actually, who we are and how we act. And so it's especially important to make sure the right things go into them. Let's have a look at a few of these eight. Paul says, whatever is true. That means to, we're to reject anything that's a lie, anything that we know isn't true that's going to lead us down the wrong path in our thinking. Whatever is right, the idea of holy thinking, of, of thinking that's untainted by sin, that would be to our de detriment, things that would cause us to stumble, we're to just put aside. Whatever is pure, we don't want poison flowing through our minds. We don't want corrupting devices and items to flit across the inner screen of our eyes. We don't want those things. We want what is pure. If anything is excellent, he says towards the end, I, we're not consuming the dregs, but the best stuff with our minds. And then anything that is praiseworthy, well, anything that's actually deserving of our attention, of our admiration, of our praise. These are the types of things we should be consuming with our minds. What Paul is saying here isn't the idea of having a positive mental attitude or the power of positive thinking. This isn't psychologically tricking yourself to think better or think better about yourself. What Paul is saying is feed yourself with these things, these type of things, and it will do the work for you. It will so renew and transform your mind that you'll find yourself abounding in that peace that God promises and so, therefore, the question for each and every one of us is, well, where do we find these things? Where's the source of these eight great nutrients for our mind? Just as sheep grazing in a field will always veer towards the greenest grass, the best pastures, what should we be veering towards? Well, let me say for Christians, first and foremost, the place to find these things is here in this book. This book, the Bible, is full of these eight things. It's full of things that are good 
and true and pure and right and worthy of praise, of admiration. It's just packed full of them. There's no better source, actually. And consuming this book, almost eating it and chewing on it and meditating upon it will utterly transform your mind, will utterly cause peace to break out like an explosion and change you from the inside out. It's been many people's testimony that here is a source of good thinking. Here is a source of good thoughts that we can meditate upon because they're not man's thoughts, they're God's thoughts. They're God's words. And so filling ourselves with those things is going to be a wonderful thing. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 says this, I found your words and I ate them and they became to me a joy and a delight of my heart no other book can do that as well as this one can no other source of things to think about can do it as well as this book can I commend to you to spend time chewing upon it Dr. Emile Calais is the name of someone who before their death was for many years a biblical teacher and professor in Princeton in America, respected on both sides of the Atlantic for his study of the Bible. But this was despite the fact, interestingly, that he, as a young man, was a complete atheist, an anti-theist. He hated religion, he hated the idea of God, and he hated people that professed to follow him. As a young man in World War I, he'd served in the French army and seen utter horrors and thought, I don't want anything to do with religion that speaks about a God when I've seen this stuff in front of me. No way. But after that war, he was left with feelings of anxiety and stress, just a lack of peace. We diagnose it nowadays as post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was longing to find peace of mind. And so he started to compile a book of famous quotations, any sayings that he came across that he thought might help him, and he called it the book that would understand me. And he compiled it and got fatter and fatter and fatter over the years. And then one day, he sat down to read it, cover to cover. And by the time he got to the end of it, his heart sank, because actually that book did absolutely nothing for him. He was still left in that anxiety that he always had. Then a few years later, his wife was given a Bible by the local French Huguenot church. And his wife tried to hide it away at home, thinking, I can't let him see that I've got a Bible. He'll, he'll flip. But eventually he saw this Bible and he said, okay then, give me the Bible, let me read it. And he started in the Gospels. And then he couldn't stop reading. He read for several hours on end through the New Testament and then into the Old Testament. And at the end of those several hours of reading, he put the book down, the Bible, he bowed his head and said this, at last I've found the book that understands me. And there and then he became a Christian and received the peace he just longed for. Finally had it. And in fact, he found this book such a wonderful book that he went on to teach it in the seminaries and universities for the rest of his life. A book that brings peace. It's words that re-speak thoughts in our head and cause anxieties to diminish and to be quelled. 
this book is full of these things. Commend it to you. There are other places you can go to apart from here, but no other place has it as concentrated on tap as the source itself. Commend that to you. However, going back to that verse, verse 8, what it also says to us is not only are we to seek to eat what is good for us and healthy for our mind, but it also says to us, avoid what isn't. Avoid what isn't these things, things that are untrue and shameful and wrong and impure. Just don't have anything to do with them. Don't allow them to be dwelt upon. Just as there'd be no point in in eating the most amazingly healthy diet throughout the day, but then every night picking out on junk food, there'd be no point in having the most wonderful words flowing through our minds and then just having the most awful things flowing through them at night. There are lots of possible sources of junk food for the mind, if we're honest today. Things we watch on TV, websites we click on on the internet, books, magazines we read, and even people we might listen to, all of which at times will have the potential to cause our thoughts to go down wrong paths and just build up anxieties rather than cause them to be quelled. The American theologian D.A. Carson said this, The sad fact is that many people dwell on dirt without grasping that it is dirt. The wise Christian will see plenty of dirt in the world, but will recognise it as dirt precisely because everything that is clean has captured his or her mind. There's a call here to recognise what's clean and what's just pure dirt that we have nothing to do with. I'll never forget hearing the story of an African bishop many years ago now who came to this country for the first time and visited various people's homes. And he noticed that in every living room there was a TV. And as he saw this, his heart just sank further and further and further. Until at one point the person who was showing him around asked him the question, Bishop, why aren't you happy? What's going on? Why don't you enjoy these visits? And he came back with the question, why would anyone allow an open sewer to run through their front rooms? Now, it's a bit harsh, but it makes a point. It makes a point. Why would anyone want an open sewer running through their front living rooms? Well, why are they so obsessed with these boxes then? In the church I came to know Christ, I remember hearing the story of... uh, a young man who was plagued with thoughts of lust and just couldn't get them out of his mind. But one Lent time, for the 40 days of Lent, he chose to give up TV. He chose to give up any source of information that would cause him to stumble on his mind. And he reported at the end, guess what? I don't have a problem anymore. It's gone. It's gone. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5.14 speaks of those who have become mature because through constant testing they've learnt to distinguish good from evil. And it may be here there's a call for some of you to do this. What thing are you watching that you might need to stop watching? What link on the internet are you clicking you need to stop clicking. What rubbish are you reading? 
that you need to stop reading? What is it? Is there stuff that just is not going to be helpful? It's going to cause you to stumble. It's going to rob you of peace. An old Indian Christian, when asked about this by a missionary, explained it like this. In my mind, there is a battle going on. And it's a battle between two dogs, a black dog and a white dog. And they're constantly yapping at each other. And then he was asked, well, which dog wins? And he replied with the answer, the one I feed the most. The one I feed the most. I wonder which one are you feeding? What are you feeding yourself with? Consume what's healthy for your mind. Well, that was the first point from this passage. The second point. Have a mind that is captivated by Christ. Verse 9, Paul continues, Whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, at first, this seems supremely arrogant of Paul. He's saying, we've been talking about these eight things. Well, I am the embodiment. Just look at me, look at my life, follow what I've done, and you'll be okay. The God of peace will be with you. But for anyone that knows Paul and especially has been travelling with us in Philippians over the last few weeks, that's not what he's saying at all. Because we know that Paul was all about one person and one person alone. Paul was all about Christ, about trying to follow him and his example and live according to his ways. And so when he says to the Philippian church, look at my life, he's actually saying, look at Christ. I've been trying to follow him and exemplify him to you. Look at Christ. And if you do, if you consider him, as I've been trying to show you to him, if you dwell upon his example, if you let your mind be on him, well, the God of peace, the God of all peace, will be with you. He says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the idea that actually dwelling upon Jesus' example, having a mind captured by him, every thought captive to him, leads to peace. You see, Jesus alone is the one who embodies these eight things we've been looking at. He's the one that is true. He says, I am the truth. He's the one who is noble. He's done the noble act upon the cross. The one who is right, who who never spoke a lie, always did what was right. Whoever is pure, well, he's the one who is pure through and through. The one who is altogether lovely and admirable, who's done all things excellently and alone is praiseworthy. It's him. He is the fulfilment of these things. And so having a mind on him will change everything. This is a call, really, to think about Jesus. Think upon his character, saturate your mind with his words, imitate his actions, celebrate his salvation, putting him at the very centre of your thinking. Because doing that means that he dwells there, means that his peace will reign over your thoughts. He will quell and quash the anxieties. He will do what often we can't. Bible commentator John Phillips says this, we must think of Christ. 
that is the ultimate secret of a positive thought life. All unworthy thoughts perish in his presence. And this isn't just a theoretical or super spiritual idea. It has very practical ramifications. That when, like Peter, you're called to work on very turbulent waters, looking anywhere else is going to cause you to sink. We all know that. But looking back at him, casting your gaze upon Jesus, suddenly, oh, I can walk through this. I can do things I didn't think were possible because he's given me his peace. All of us know this isn't the easiest of things to maintain and to do. John Newton, the famous hymn writer, once said this, If I may speak of my own experience, I find that to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. It's hard to do. I know as a minister who's called to follow Christ and to minister in his name, how easy it is for our thoughts, the directions of our hearts to go anywhere but towards him. Consumed by the latest crisis, or the pressing email, or simply the brokenness of life. And as many as you know, as soon as the gaze returns to Christ, suddenly all is made well. Suddenly there is peace. Suddenly he does what we can't. And I want to say that this is seen in no better place than in what might ultimately rob each and every one of us here of peace, of peace of mind the turmoil and the tumult of the possibility of death, which many of us face and continue to face and will face in the future. This is the litmus test. Does it work in the face of death? And I want to say, yes, it does. As a minister, it's been a great privilege to spend many hours alongside the dying at their bedside. And let me tell you, there is a difference between those who have a mind set on Christ and those who don't. It's obvious, really obvious. There's a tangible, measurable difference. It was said of the early Methodists that whenever one of them died or was in the process of dying, the family would call around the town all the neighbours and all their friends to come to the room, come and see this person die as a witness to the difference Christ can make. Wesley, their leader, later said, our people die well. They die well. You should just see them dying. They're amazing. They die well. Many of us over the last month had the great privilege of spending time with David Fry, whose funeral was this Friday, our beloved David. And many of us will testify that He had a mind set on Christ. And you could just see it. You could see the difference it made. The peace, the hope, the expectation, the assurance of what Christ can bring. And let me tell you, if you're here today and you're facing that prospect or one day will face that prospect, don't do it without him. Don't do it without him. It's horrendous without him. It really is. But with him, he makes everything different. He can bring peace out of the most awful situation if you allow your mind to be captivated by him. 
Well, I've got to end. And let me just end by saying, this is actually the end for Paul. When he says in verse 8, finally, this is the first, he finally says finally for the last time. So we say, yes, finally. <laughs> this is actually his last piece of discipleship teaching ever recorded. The rest of the letter is actually more general social teaching. Hundreds of words on how to follow Christ. Thousands of probably sermons that he's given. And yet, what does he end with? The last letter before he's martyred and has death. He ends with saying, the battle is won here. Up here, get it right. What are you consuming with it? What are you allowing to go into it? What are you to avoid? And ultimately, who captivates it? Who dwells there? Who resides there as Lord and King? Is it Jesus? Is it Christ? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that your promise is that you can give us a peace that the world doesn't give, a peace beyond all understanding. We pray that we might experience that peace in our lives in the face of anxieties and troubles. We pray that you'd give us discernment to consume only what is good and healthy for us and to reject the unhealthy. And above all, we pray and ask Jesus that you would so captivate our minds that we would know your peace dwelling from the very centre of them, permeating out through us. In Jesus' name. Amen.